You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 267 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. As you guys will recall, by the end of the last episode, Stonewall Jackson's flank attack had stalled in darkness and confusion. The sun had set at 649 on that Saturday evening, May 2nd, 1863, and although the moon was just one day short of being full, its light filtering through the trees and the tangled woods produced thick shadows, and as night settled upon the wilderness, each sound and every real or imagined glimpse of movement was, in the minds of jumpy soldiers, the enemy maneuvering somewhere nearby in the shadowy darkness. As the moon rose in the sky and that eerie, unsettling half-light, half-darkness settled upon the wilderness, Stonewall Jackson continued to ride forward. Nearing the old schoolhouse where a road from Hazel Grove joined the plank road, he pulled up to take a message from Jeb Stewart, whose horsemen were scouting north toward Eli's Ford. Jackson read the message, looked up, and asked the courier, "'Do you know all of this country?' The young man, a 19-year-old private in the 9th Virginia Cavalry named David Kyle, had grown up on a farm just a mile away and had hunted throughout the wilderness. This was literally his backyard, and so he assured Stonewall that he did know the area. Keep along with me, Jackson ordered Kyle. With Kyle and his staff, Stonewall continued east on the plank road, passing Heath's brigade, and then catching up to Lane's troops. You see, as part of A.P. Hill's division, the brigades of Harry Heath, Dorsey Pender, and James Lane had trailed behind the first two Confederate lines, which were made up of the divisions of Robert Rhodes and Raleigh Colston. But with Rhodes and Colston's lines getting increasingly jumbled up and confused in the tangled terrain and growing darkness, Rhodes had finally called a halt to their advance so they could pull back and regroup. And so now, knowing Stonewall Jackson wanted the advance to continue, A.P. Hill had sent Lane forward first to relieve Rhodes and Colston's troops and prepare for a night attack. Exactly. And so Lane's North Carolinians along the Plank Road were now the only Confederate infantry confronting Hooker's flank in the darkness. With Rhodes and Colston pulling back, 
The broad two-mile front on which Jackson had started his attack had shrunk to the half-mile now covered by Lane's regiments as they felt for their places north and south of the Plank Road and formed a new line of battle in the dark. A.P. Hill's other brigades were still strung out back along the road, but Stonewall nevertheless wanted to keep the pressure on to push ahead in a night attack before Hooker could bring order out of panic and organize his defenses. Jackson was keyed up, dispatching one staff officer after another to hurry along A.P. Hill and his brigadiers. Stonewall sent his young brother-in-law, Lieutenant Joe Morrison, back to tell Dorsey Pender to bring his brigade up just behind Lane's. Then out of the woods rode Lane himself, looking for Hill to ask for orders. When he instead came upon Jackson, Stonewall told him, Push right ahead, Lane, as he shoved his palm forward toward the enemy. As Jackson rode on in that direction, staff officers and a handful of couriers trailed around him. There was his topographical engineer, Captain J. Keith Boswell. Captain R. E. Wilborn, his signal officer, caught up with a report on Hill's plan of advance. Morrison returned from his errand. Then, moving to the left of several pieces of, a, of horse artillery positioned on the plank road, Jackson reached an opening in the trees where the bullock road angled north. Calling for Kyle, Stonewall asked him where it led. The young cavalryman said the bullock road led to a farm, quote, unquote, behind Chancellorsville. Kyle also said that another, lesser-known byway, the entrance of which was barely visible in the moonlight, paralleled the plank road to the north for about a half-mile before rejoining it. If you know that one, Jackson said, lead the way. They rode along that side road, the mountain road, for 200 yards or so, beyond Lane's main line, and stopped again. Now all that was ahead in the darkness were Lane's skirmishers and then the enemy. Jackson wanted to know what was out there. He could have sent any staff officer, but he was impatient. His advance had stalled, true, but he wasn't yet ready to quit. He wanted to know, now, whether he could still thrust his men left around the Yankees ahead and get between Hooker and the river. One of the worried young officers worked up the nerve to ask, General, don't you think this is the wrong place for you? Jackson brushed him off, saying, The danger is all over. The enemy is routed. Go back and tell A.P. Hill to press right on. Moving forward under the dark canopy of trees along the mountain road, Jackson and his party reached a point just behind the rebel skirmish line. Halting again, Stonewall sat on his horse and listened. The Federals were just ahead, and he could hear their officers ordering troops about. There was the noise of shovels and axes, the sounds of men felling trees and digging in. Jackson sat still, considering whether he should press on with a night attack against an alert enemy. But Jackson knew that if he waited, then by morning... Any advantage he had gained thus far would be gone. His men would have to storm positions the enemy had spent all night fortifying, and Hooker would have no doubt moved formidable reserves into place. Or Stonewall could launch a risky night attack now while the Federals were still off balance. 
Having made up his mind, Jackson turned his horse back toward the main Confederate line, and then the night erupted in fire. As Stonewall Jackson turned back toward his lines, several important things were happening almost simultaneously. Not far away, A.P. Hill was doing some reconnaissance of his own. He didn't have a local guide, though, and so didn't know about the mountain road. That meant he and the other nine members of his party took the more exposed route along the plank road, almost parallel with Jackson, who was just to the north. Farther down the Confederate line, south of the Plank Road, a lost Federal unit, the 128th Pennsylvania, had earlier wandered into the dark, no-man's land between the Confederate skirmishers and Lane's main line. A couple of hundred of the hapless Pennsylvanians were quickly captured, but their presence, which had been undetected by the rebel skirmishers, left everyone on edge. Then, even earlier in the evening, as the Confederate advance had swept forward, a regiment of Union cavalry, the 8th Pennsylvania, had suddenly burst from the woods along the plank road. Finding themselves trapped, their commander had ordered a charge in an attempt to break out. The survivors scattered into the woods and tried to make their way back to friendly Union lines, leaving behind 33 casualties and dozens of dead horses. Well. First, Yankee cavalry, then enemy infantry. The Federals, it seemed, were everywhere in the dark woods. Individual Confederate soldiers, their nerves on edge, fired at shadows, at strange sounds, at phantom enemies. At the south end of Lane's line of North Carolina regiments, below the Plank Road, skittish Confederates fired into the shadows, spooking the men to their left, who likewise fired into the darkness. The series of shots picked up momentum and rolled north up the Confederate line like a firecracker fuse. The rolling thunder first caught A.P. Hill's party, which was exposed in the moonlight out on the plank road. Only Hill himself was untouched. Everyone else in his group was killed, wounded, or carried toward enemy lines on the back of a terrified horse. The fire also ripped across the front, where Stonewall Jackson and his party were coming back toward the Confederate lines. Jackson's brother-in-law, Lieutenant Joe Morrison, whose horse was shot in the initial volley, yelled, Cease firing! You are firing into your own men! But the North Carolinians were veterans who had seen every enemy trick, and besides, hadn't Federal horsemen come charging through here just hours before? In fact, there were dead horses and Union cavalrymen near the road and in the woods. And now weren't these horsemen coming from the direction of Union lines? And so, even as Jackson's brother-in-law called out for the rebel infantry to cease firing, Major John Barry of the 18th North Carolina shouted, It's a lie! Pour it into them, boys! As another volley erupted, Jackson and his eight companions were around 90 yards from the line of North Carolinians. At that range, a smoothbore musket has about a 1 in 16 chance of hitting its target, and that's under perfect conditions. 
Jackson's party, however, was riding through a thick forest in the dark. Stonewall would have cut an especially dark figure because he was wearing a long black India rubber raincoat. Still, despite the odds of those in Stonewall's party being hit, William Cunliffe, a Signal Corps enlisted man, was shot dead, while another, a courier, Private Joshua Johns, was wounded, and three bullets struck Jackson. One passed through his right palm, breaking two fingers, and lodged beneath the skin against the back of his hand. Another entered his left forearm an inch below the elbow, and exited the other side just above the wrist. The third bullet did the most damage, splintering bone and tendons three inches below the left shoulder before passing through his arm. That night, 19 men, nine in Jackson's party and 10 in the group that included A.P. Hill, rode past Lane's line of North Carolinians. None of them, Jackson and Hill included, informed anyone that they were passing beyond the Confederate lines. For that lapse of judgment, ten men in the two parties were shot, with four killed. Within moments of this tragic incident, men began to speculate on who fired the bullets, wondering who done it, with a mixture of guilt, concern, and simple curiosity. The 18th North Carolina's line stood opposite both of the spots where Hill's and Jackson's parties were hit, and so that regiment received the most blame, no doubt correctly. But James Lane, who, when it happened, had been down at the opposite end of his brigade line, to the south of the Plank Road, later said that Major Barry told him he, quote, knew nothing of Jackson and Hill's having gone to the front that he could not tell friend from foe in the dark and woods. Barry told Lane he presumed the horsemen to his front were Union cavalry that had penetrated the rebel skirmish line. And Lane, for his part, pointed out that A.P. Hill, in all of that general's reaction to and recollection of the event, never censured the 18th. But still, the North Carolinians behind the guilty muskets knew at once what they had done. An officer in the 18th wrote, Our regiment was fully aware of the terrible mistake within 10 minutes after it happened. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Livesey from the History of the Second World War podcast. My podcast is a mostly chronological retelling of the Second World War, and I hope you will join me on a journey through the most cataclysmic conflict in human history as we try to answer the questions of not just what and where, but how and why. Join me on a journey not just through the famous campaigns, battles, and events, but also on a trip around the globe as we broaden the scope of Second World War history beyond the well-known battlefields of Europe and the Pacific. During weekly episodes, I seek to provide new insight for longtime students of the war, while also being a great jumping-on point for anyone seeking a deeper understanding of the Second World War. This podcast has made it to the invasion of Poland in 1939, and start listening now to find out how the world would find itself embroiled in its second worldwide conflict in just 20 years. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms, or at History of the Second World War. While A.P. Hill's party was decimated by the volleys of friendly fire, with only Hill and his horse emerging unscathed, only three of the men in Jackson's group were hit. Since five bullets found their mark in Stonewall's nine-man party, his odds of being hit at all were one in two. And so for three of the bullets to hit one man, Stonewall, defied the odds by a staggering ratio. By the time A.P. Hill reached the scene, the wounded Jackson had been lifted from his horse. Stonewall suffered from four injuries, the three gunshot wounds and a scratched face. The scratches happened when Little Sorrel had wheeled violently away from the muzzle blasts along the 18th North Carolina's line and passed under a limb on a tree on the southern side of the mountain road. Signal Officer Wilborn's frantic horse followed, and both men came near to losing their seats, but both managed to stay mounted. Jackson somehow caught the reins in his right hand, which was mangled by a bullet, and by agonizing effort turned the animal back toward the Confederate lines. He was unable to stop Little Sorrel completely until Captain Wilborn rode alongside and grabbed the reins. William Wynne, a Signal Corps enlisted man, came up on the other side, and the two held Jackson in the saddle. Jackson told Wilborn his arm was broken and he had better dismount, then toppled toward him. Wilburn and Wynne managed to slide Stonewall out of the saddle, but the stricken general could barely stand. The two men helped Jackson into the woods on the north side of the plank road and eased him down behind a tree. Wilburn sent Wynne to find Dr. Hunter McGuire, Jackson's physician, or some other surgeon. Soon thereafter, A.P. Hill arrived. Wilborn, with a penknife, had slit the left sleeves of Jackson's raincoat jacket, and two shirts. Between them, Wilborn and Hill performed most of the first aid that Jackson received while still beyond the Confederate front line. They tied handkerchiefs above and below the upper arm wound and fashioned a third handkerchief into a sling. Although Jackson had, of course, bled considerably from his torn and broken arm, it seems likely that the artery hadn't yet ruptured, since Wilborn wrote not long after the event that the wound, quote, had apparently ceased bleeding, and we indulged the hope that the artery was not cut. When Surgeon Benjamin Wright of the 55th North Virginia reached the general and examined the arm in the moonlight, he found that the handkerchief bandaging was adequate and noted that, quote, 
the hemorrhage had been slight. End quote. It was not thought that a tour- tourniquet was needed at that moment due to the lack of bleeding, so it was only after this, when he was being carried to the rear and dropped heavily on his left side, that damage was done to the artery and he lost a significant amount of blood. More than a dozen officers and men tended Stonewall as his aides moved him in arduous stages toward the rear. The journey proceeded by mixed means, and all of them were made more difficult by enemy artillery fire sweeping down the plank road. Jackson first tried to walk, half stumbling, half dragged toward Confederate lines. He was next carried clumsily by three aides, who took awkward steps forward while supporting him, and then he was transported in three or four spells on a litter before finally being placed in an ambulance. We'll talk in greater detail about that agonizing journey to the rear, especially the two painful falls along the way, in another episode that we're going to do about the death of Stonewall Jackson. But we're going to do that show at the end of the Chancellorsville story arc, because at this point, even with Stonewall out of action, the battle continued. Right. You see, A.P. Hill, who took command following Jackson's accident, was wounded by one of those Federal artillery blasts that bedeviled Stonewall's evacuation. Jackson's other two division commanders, Robert Rhodes and Raleigh Colston, were both too inexperienced to lead the entire Second Corps, so the wounded Hill wisely sent for Confederate cavalry commander Jeb Stuart to take charge. It would be hours before Stuart could arrive on the scene, though. And when he finally did, he inherited a tactical situation he knew almost nothing about. The man best suited to brief him, the stricken Stonewall Jackson, was by that time only able to offer the advice that Stuart must do as he thought best. Thus ended the combat on May 2nd. The Confederate army sat dangerously divided and with its leadership in disarray. The Federals had been rocked back on their heels, but not defeated. In short, the Battle of Chancellorsville was far from over. In fact, the most serious fighting between the two sides was still ahead. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, or recommendations, since we're going to take the opportunity to re-recommend two biographies of Stonewall Jackson. And those would be Rebel Yell, The Violence, Passion, and Redemption of Stonewall Jackson by S.C. Gwynn, and Stonewall Jackson, The Man, The Soldier, The Legend by James I. Robertson, Jr., Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations in a handy list at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Also at the website, you can start the process to join the Strawfoot Brigade, like our newest members, John, Richard, and Tom. We want to thank them for their support of the podcast. And then we also want to say thank you to James L. for his donation this past week. Yep. Thanks, guys. And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861-1865, a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope you'll join us again next week when we'll continue with the story of the Battle of Chancellorsville 
But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.